Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's episode. I pray that these are a blessing to you, and I want to thank you for tuning in and joining us. Today we are in the book of Revelation, continuing through. We are in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to look at Jesus' third letter to the churches, to the seven churches. And this one is to the church in Pergamum, or Pergamus. And we want to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and then we'll discuss this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written which no one knows except him who receives it. So today we'll discuss this third letter to this third church that Jesus is writing to, and it is the church of Pergamos, or it's called, it's called Pergamum as well. But I want to just briefly mention the other two that we've looked at. First of all, we looked at the church at Ephesus and the only problem with the church at Ephesus that Jesus noted to them was that they had gotten so busy with the business of the king, they weren't spending time with him. Their relationship had suffered because they were so engrossed in ministry. And sometimes that can happen, especially to those who are in some form of ministry for the Lord, especially on a full-time basis or, or on a regular basis. Sometimes we can get so busy doing the things of the kingdom that we forget about spending time with the king. And what's most important is our personal relationship with him. Then we looked at the second church, the church in Smyrna, and that one represented the persecuted or suffering church. And Jesus tells them, be faithful until death and then you will receive the crown of life. They had nothing bad said against them, but Jesus was encouraging them that even though they were suffering and persecuted, remain faithful all the way up until death because Jesus was going to reward them with a crown of life to the overcomer. So now we look at Pergamus or Pergamon, the third letter. It was an ancient capital of the province of Asia. It was located 50 miles north of Smyrna. 
And it's been said, although we don't know if this is true, that parchment was first used there. It sat on a high hill, dominating a valley below. Notice the title that Jesus gives when he introduces himself to this church. He says he is the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. When we look back at Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, we see him identified here directly because he, John is talking about seeing the risen Son of God, the Son of Man, and he says in verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So we know based on this title, it is Jesus, the risen Lord, and he's pointing out that he has in his mouth, he's the one that has the sharp two-edged sword, and it goes forth from his mouth when he determines necessary. I want to read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even through the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So Jesus is reminding them here that he is the one that has that sword of the word of God in his mouth, and he knows he knows how to discern. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. He's talking about the Logos here, the Word of God, and it can cut even by one single blow. It's that powerful. It doesn't have to hack away at us. It cuts by a single blow. It cuts and it discerns, even between thoughts and intents even between joints and marrow, even between soul and spirit, those very fine lines. The Word of God knows how to get between those and cut the right way. Jesus tells the church at Pergamos, I know your works. He says, I know where you live. I know it's in the area where Satan's throne is. Now, whether this is some form of reference to a literal place on earth, or that Satan's authority and influence was operational there, it was honored, it was in effect openly, because it was a place of idolatry as well and immorality. He commends this church because they are holding fast to his name and they've not denied his faith, even when one of their members, Antipas, became a martyr. They were still faithful. Now, this is not Herod Antipas, so don't get this confused. This is another believer later on that was named Antipas. But Jesus also points out a problem he has with them. He says, you are allowing those that have the doctrine of Balaam to operate and to be among you without rebuke, without correction. Balaam to understand his story, you look back in Numbers chapter 22 through 24, and you will see what the Bible talks about uh, concerning this man named Balaam. 
You'll also find where he was later killed in Numbers, I believe it's Numbers chapter 31, if I'm not mistaken. So Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the children of Israel that would lead them to idolatry and sexual immorality. Now, just to give you the heads up on the bulk of the story in capsule form, Balaam had been hired by Balak, the king of Moab, because Balak wanted to bring a curse upon the children of Israel. And so Balaam was this Transjordanian seer. He was kind of a, he was really a strange character, but God got his attention somehow. And with this talking donkey, for instance, and corrected him and said, you go down there and you tell them what I tell you to tell them. And so Balaam was hired to try to bring a curse upon Israel. Well, God did not allow that. And every time he opened his mouth, it was a blessing. And so Balak got mad at him. And Balak said, whoa, I hired you to curse them and all you do is keep blessing them. Well, it ended up that Balaam then convinced Balak of a way to bring God's curse upon them by causing them to get involved in idolatry and immorality. And that alone would cause God to curse them, to withdraw his hand of blessing from them, and to bring discipline and judgment upon them. So that's what he did. That was what Jesus is talking about here, that they put a stumbling block in front of them. Now, if you'll remember, and we've discussed this in some other episodes, but in the Gospels, Jesus spoke in great authority and sternly against anyone who would mislead or lead astray even one of the little ones. Jesus does not take that lightly. That's a very serious offense to God. Balaam ended up dying later on at the hands of others and suffered judgment from God because of what he had done. And Jesus says that it would even be better if someone had a millstone put about their neck and they were thrown into the sea and drowned than for anyone to put a stumbling block in front of even one little one. So that's how serious this is. But the doctrine of Balaam was that he was hired, so he was doing it for profit, but he was deceitful with trickery and fraud. So he had led the people astray through trickery and fraud, through this love of money that he was obsessed with, and this is how he was able to do this evil deed. I want to read a couple of other scriptures to you. In 2 Peter chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, 
and their destruction does not slumber. Peter here is warning of false prophets and false teachers coming in the future, but he's describing things in this chapter that also fit Balaam. Let's also look at a few places in this chapter, verse 12 through 16. Let's read that. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practice and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So here, Peter is giving us the example of Balaam as fitting in this chapter with these false prophets and false teachers who are leading other people astray for wrong and evil purposes and reasons. Then in verse 18 through 20 of this same chapter, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome by him also, he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So these are the types of things that people that succumb to the doctrine of Balaam will bring and will be like. Peter is warning about that here. Jude in the New Testament, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, also speaks of Balaam. In Jude chapter 1, it only has the one chapter, I want to read a few verses here. Verses 3 through 4 first. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 8 through 11, Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, 
like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So here we see more information about Balaam and what Jesus is referring to in this example when he mentions the doctrine of Balaam. And so he tells us that they are leading people astray, and Jesus takes that very seriously. So he warns this church at Pergamos, you're allowing that to happen, and you must repent. He says, do not give place to them any longer. This is heresy. He also tells them and warns them against the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It was a heresy also leading to idolatry and immorality. So this church was a compromising church. They had a care for the Lord, but they were compromising in allowing these other heresies, these other things that would bring people stumbling blocks and lead them astray, they were allowing those things to operate and to be among them. And Jesus took it very seriously. And he said, repent. Repent. That's the solution. He said, repent. Do an, a complete 180. You stop going that direction. You change your mind. You hate that and think of that as evil as I do, and repent, turn away from it, turn back to me, because a change of mind will lead to that changed behavior that even John the Baptist spoke of when he talked to the Pharisees, and he said, bring fruits, meat for repentance, or in other words, suitable, proving your real repentance. That's what he meant. Jesus tells them the danger if they will not repent. He says he will come and fight against those with his sword. The same one that we talked about from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The one that is sharp, sharp enough to cut with a single blow. He then gives the call to every individual and to this church to have an open ear to hear his correction, to hear his warning, and respond accordingly, the open ear that will listen. And then he gives a promise to the overcomer, showing that there's hope even for those inside a compromising church. He says, if you will overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit, then I will give you of the hidden manna, which reminds us of the manna that fell in the Old Testament that God used to sustain the children of Israel all through their wilderness wanderings. It was the bread or grain that fell from heaven that God gave them. And then Jesus comes along in John chapter 6, verse 32 through 40, and explains that it was symbolic of him. He is the bread of life. And so there's, there's some hidden manna that Jesus promises to this overcoming church, to the overcomers in this church. He also says he will give them a white stone, signifying a couple of different things. It can signify acquittal in a legal charge. 
or it can signify victory in athletics. But Jesus will give them a white stone, and on that stone he will write a special name for them that no one else will know but them, a personalized name that will speak to them, that will speak to their character or will encourage them in some prophetic way. Wow, we don't understand all of these things that are yet to come and that Jesus may mean here, but he gives them a beautiful promise, a personalized message. So what we get from the looking at the church in Pergamos is this understanding that we cannot compromise. We must hold fast to the truth. Do not allow other things to creep in. Do not allow any heresy. Do not allow anything or anyone that leads astray. Don't follow after that. Stay true. Jesus talked about the straight and narrow path and that we must stay on it. And there are few that find it, he says. But my prayer for you is that you will be on that straight and narrow and stay put, stay the course with no compromising whatsoever. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes. God bless you in Jesus name. Amen.